Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Chris Ferdell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. Welcome, Jackson. How are you doing, Christopher? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. I got to ask you, have you ever been to Chicago? You know, I've been there on a connecting flight, and I had some wonderful airport food there. Highly Never recommend. outside the airport. <laughs> Never outside the airport, unfortunately. I, uh, when I went and visited, only once, and this was before the world was weird, um, I stood in front of Lake Michigan and I was floored by how big, uh, I thought it was an ocean. It was the biggest I ever seen. And, uh, you know, that seems like a weird, weird way to start a podcast, but, uh, today's guest, um, Keith Besserud, he's the, uh, the director of innovation at Gresham Smith. He was actually, when we interviewed, he was, uh, he went to his office. He was one of those brave people that went to the office and I asked him, I was like, you know, why are you in the office? And he, he showed me out his window, had a fantastic view of Lake Michigan. So I think that's why he went. Or he just wanted to show me out the window. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, all right. So today, uh, today we had the, the I, again, like I said, I had the chance to talk to Keith. And um, a lot of our conversation really was about just innovation as a process. Um, or developing it as a process and and how you know we we here at applied we're we're in the beginning of this journey uh, Keith has had a storied career uh, but he he had some great great ideas and thoughts as to uh, to how to approach innovation yeah one of the key takeaways I had at least was some of his his the mentality he brought from a, the startup world you know, um, so Jackson, I know you had had a chance to hear it and, and listen in. What were your thoughts on some of his high high arching uh, points? Um, I, I think that um, first of all, this was one of the most impressive people I've ever listened to in my life. <laughs> um, but um, whenever he was talking about startups and just innovation in general, um, I think his best point was to not be in your own silo um, because you know you could think that you have the best idea ever and um, you know you could just keep working on it and working on it and not really telling anybody about it you know trying to be real cutesy with it like it's a surprise and when I drop this it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread but really the mentality needs to be like Keith said you know you need to put some half-baked stuff out there and get some feedback on it because at the end of the day, you know, we're in this business to make money. Mm -hmm. And although you make a really cool thing that you love, not everybody's going to love it. And um, you need to have feedback from the people who are going to be using it down the road. So I think his point of putting the half-baked ideas out there for feedback is really important. And it's necessary for innovation. I thought that was a great takeaway because the uh, kind of like the get outside the building concept. Um, and, and even I think he mentioned like he, you might have a great idea and you might be working on something, but it doesn't get used the way you intended it. It still could be successful. I mean, there's a great, there's a ton of products out there just that we all probably interact with or, um, you know, we were, we were joking about our hats and stuff, but like Rogaine, I think is an example of one that that wasn't intended to be a hair product. You know, it was intended, I think, to be a, a heart medicine or something else. You and just so, blew my mind. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> man, I've been a heart medicine. It was a real thing. Um, yeah, so, you know, that idea of that getting outside the building, sort of testing your theory as to what you're doing is, is the right answer or is the right thing. I think that was a great thing. One, another takeaway I had, was uh, it seems simple, but they've committed at Gresham Smith. They really committed from the top down as to this innovation. He, they even talk about they they instilled it as one of their pillars of an organization. But they had a line item for a budget, and it seems like it's you know that's a very corporate thing to have to do. But when you take that off the table, it, it really helps open the doors to to what we can achieve. Right, and. Another thing that was that Keith said is that, you know, ingrained in their innovation uh, culture is that failure is okay. And that's a big thing because, you know, some people, you know, they'll have an idea 
and they'll work on it and they'll think it's awesome. But there's also going to be people who are scared to put their idea out there for whatever reason. You know, their coworkers might think that, you know, differently of them for that idea or yep. whatever, and they're scared to put it out. They don't have the conviction um, behind that idea. But whenever you ingrain in the culture that, you know, hey, it's okay to fail, it's okay to bring things up that, you know, we may not go for, um, that's going to allow you to have a much larger net of ideas. Mm -hmm. And there will be diamonds in the rough whenever, you know, you have a culture like that and whenever you're trying to achieve innovation at your company. He really has created a, a safe space to innovate, which I think is uh, something that I, I took away and, and want to instill. Um, like I said, like you said, uh, he, he was a, he was a great person to interview. Um, I'm sure we will have him back on. And uh, he had, he had a lot of great things to say. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, an architect, uh, by school and by license, um, practice, you know, maybe the first part of my career in sort of a traditional kind of way. Um, I mean, I go back far enough that my first jobs were hand drafting. Um, so I sort of have been able to live the, the transition. Hey, I have a drafting board. <laughs> yeah, I see that. <laughs> um, so when, when technology emerged, I, I, was, I was very interested in it. And, and throughout my career um, as a designer, I've always been interested in how technology was potentially uh, enabling things as a designer that, that weren't possible before. So I was always intrigued with that. And um, mid-career, I ended up taking a break. I was living in the, the New York area um, in Hoboken, New Jersey. And um, I happened to be there at a time when a program was born at a place called the Stevens Institute of Technology uh, by a fellow named John Nastasi, who had came out of the Harvard GSD. And he set up this interdisciplinary program at Stevens um, that was bringing together design and technology and design, not just from architecture, but from you name it, kinds of design, uh, from medical, engineering, uh, aeronautical, um, it was kind of open to anybody, but the common denominator was the technology um, that was emerging. And so I, I, I resigned from, from the job that I had to go back to school mid-career to get this um, two-year degree. And while I was there, the New York office of SOM started sponsoring research. And I was part of the first cohort that was interfacing with their design teams, bringing um, things like genetic algorithms and you know other kinds of things to, to their work. And this was in 2006-ish. Uh, and um, so when I finished the program and had developed this relationship with SOM, they recruited me and, and a couple other people. Um, and I set up a team in the Chicago office called Black Box. And we ran that for, or I ran that for about seven, eight years. Um, it was, a, a, you know, sort of a prototype, you know, um, sort of technology consulting, internal consulting team, I guess you could say, you know, and facing the important part about that was it was totally internally facing. We didn't face clients at all. We were supporting design teams and so forth. Um, so I did that for several years. And then after that, went on to Gensler, was part of um, their data and analytics group. And that one did have more of a client-facing orientation. And so with, with, that, with, with Black Box, especially at the start, the, the whole industry was sort of more focused on parametric, you know, mm -hmm. modeling, parametric design, parametric thinking, and so forth parametric tools were emerging and, and that's kind of where the large part of the focus by the time I moved on again sort the show, the focus had started to shift to data um, more explicitly and so I was part of a team there that was looking at things and like I said there we started looking at ideas about how can we use data and analytics to expand our services to clients how can we change you know some of the things that we do how can we help them understand their projects <clears throat> even pre-designed from a more strategic position, um, mm -hmm. you know. So one of the things that we got into was spatial analytics, um, understanding space utilization, um, and starting to think about user experience in the built environment a little bit. And through that kind of line of inquiry, I, I got to know a fellow that um, had been getting a startup off the ground here in Chicago. Um, 
and he was using computer vision technology to understand utilization patterns. So counting people, measuring wait times, um, things like that. And I was intrigued with it enough that I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get a taste of the startup world. And so I ended up partnering with him and co-founding a company called Spacebot and got familiar with the world of startups, um, which was a huge shift for me, um, you know, having worked. Were. Yeah, you know, used to drawing a paycheck every two weeks and, um, you know, having teams around me and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was just me and, and my partner, Dave Turner. So, um, but what was really exciting about it, what I really enjoyed about it was the direct interface with clients and the ability to hear, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what they, you know, what they were interested in, what they would pay for, what they weren't interested in. Um, because I, one of the things I know within my experience working within firms, both at SOM and in Gensler and working with, you know, the kinds of people maybe that, that Randy Deutsch refers to as super users, um, that there can be a, a sort of a self-destructive tendency to isolate yourself when you're developing something. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, an inspired individual, a talented individual gets an idea for some tool or some method or something that they want to develop. They know how to do it. And they just go to town doing it. They build this tool. They think it's the best thing ever. They put it out there and then nobody uses it. Yep. Um, do it all in a silo. Yeah. And, and so this idea of engaging with your market, even if, you know, whether that market is your, the teams in your firm around you, the, you know, the other architects and designers or whatever, um, or whether it's an external client, you know, outside that, that represents an actual new business opportunity. This idea of engaging with the client is something that, that we're not typically trained to do. I think we're, we're more inspired by making um, yep. than we are by turning it into a business. And there's a huge difference between having a great idea and having turning that into a business. It's like um, being an entrepreneur versus an, an inventor. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, Master um, tinkerer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so, so those are the kinds of things I've, I've become a little bit more attuned to, I think, mm -hmm. having spent time in the startup world. And um, so I spent a year there, um, you know, spent all my money trying to <laughs> get an idea off the ground with my partner and, and just finally had to cry uncle and say, Dave, I got to. I got to get back to earning a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he's still pushing the company along. I've moved back into the, you know, the corporate world. And now I'm with Gresham Smith, where I'm the director of innovation and, and leading the charge to sort of um, supercharge the, the innovation culture here, let's say. So. The, uh, quite, the quite the story background. So do you, I mean, because I guess this ties into your conversation earlier, you mentioned, um, I mean, were there some key takeaways from your startup years that you've now tried to infuse into the corporate world? Or, I mean, in a way, every business was a startup, right? right. At some point, what happens to the, the big corporate giants? Um, you know, why does that methodology change from the beginning? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, one of the biggest takeaways was, you know, like I had mentioned about the idea of, of getting in front of your clients and, and in, in startups, you know, it's not unusual to hear people talking about the concept of pivoting, mm -hmm. um, how you, you come up with an idea. You, you may be so in love with this idea and you think it's just the greatest thing and you really want to make it. But if you start listening to the market, there's a good chance that the market might start telling you you're not quite thinking about this right. Or you may want to think about using this in a different way because that's where a real market is. And you have to sort of let go of, of your sort of, um, you know, this, 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 this idea that you've sort of saturated in your head about where this should end up, you know, how this, how this short, how this story should end and, and, you know, where it's going to lead to. And you, you, you can't do that in a startup. You've got to, you've got to be attuned to what the market is telling you somehow. And mm -hmm. um, so, so, so here at Gresham Smith with the incubator that, that we're, you know, in the process of developing, that's one of the basic principles that, that I'm trying to embed as we, start to you know green light some projects here is is looking at a work plan that identifies you know all those points in the process 
where you're you're taking your ideas you know out to the, the to the floor to you know your teammates or whoever it is that's going to be using it or to a client of ours outside of the office and and getting feedback yep. getting getting these feedback cycles are so important um and if you listen to them you're going to have you know a much better chance of success so I don't remember where I saw this or who coined it, but I, I keep reading, like, get outside the building, uh-huh. go outside the building, you know, and it speaks to the, if we do everything in a silo, we lose sight of like what the customer actually needed or wanted. Right. And, right. and then we do get so attached to like, it has to work this way. No, you don't understand it has to work this yeah. way. And so I've tried to, um, at least in concept, keep that, you know, close to heart of get outside the building, ask your people, you know, ask your customers, ask people on the street, you know, what right. is it that you, you need or want or, or have to do? Right, right. Um, so you started talking about the incubator. You mentioned that. Now, I know there's a lot going on around that. Before we even get there, when you started uh, with Gresham Smith, did, did you start, a, like, did you create a whole new innovation process, set it up? Had they already started? I mean, obviously, Gresham Smith's been around for quite a while. I mean, did they already kind of have a methodology they were trying to apply and, and really what was the charge as to why we needed to go this direction? Yeah, when I, it was interesting when I came on board, I was hired um, largely through the design arm of the firm. Uh, the design director, Jeff Coonan was, was my primary point of contact as we were going through the, you know, the in, in interviewing and, and then the onboarding processes. And the role at that point, um, I think, had sort of more of a digital, let's call it digital design orientation, you know, which was about sort of elevating design practices and, and you know, processes and tools and all that kind of stuff, sort of changing the design culture, um, you know, through technology. Um, while I was coming on board, um, the chief strategy officer in the company, um, Randy Gibson, was also spearheading a, a broader innovation um, initiative across the firm. And um, as as things were moving forward, there was it was becoming apparent there was more and more overlap between the agenda that that I was driving more narrowly around digital innovation and the broader. Uh, agenda that Randy was driving around innovation period and um, sort of recognizing that the vast majority, not all of it, um, but the vast majority of innovation right now has a digital grounding in some way. And um, so, so that, that sort of led to, to merging the two initiatives basically. And, and I, you know, ended up being put in the position to lead it. And, um, so, so one of the things that we, so we, we, in fact, just structurally within the entire company, we, we sort of reorganized what we called our corporate pillars to have three pillars that one is about uh, design excellence. One is about essentially delivery excellence. And then the third is innovation. So one of the three primary pillars of the entire company was, was identified as innovation. Um, so it, it got that sort of recognition and blessing um you know the messaging around the importance of innovation was sort of embodied in this idea that we've established it as one of our three primary pillars and so within this innovation pillar now we've we've set up uh, what we call studio x which is um, an incubation platform let's call it and we also our second sort of main vehicle that that we're standing up is something we're calling knowledge labs which is sort of more of a, a, re, a light, let's call it a lightweight research kind of arm, which is mm-hmm. focused on information gathering. So we've got seven um, key areas of disruption that we've identified within the industry and, and within our clients' industries. And each of those seven has a team that's focused on information development and, and understanding what's going on in the world right now in these sectors. And, and what does that mean to Gresham Smith and how, do we, how should that potentially um, impact our strategy around business and, and so forth. How did so you guys how, land on the seven? Like, did you have like an initiative to seek out what, uh, where the industry is going or? It, it happened sort of just organically. I'd say it wasn't highly structured process. Um, the, the seven um, categories are ad, um, advanced construction and fabrication, advanced materials and systems, AR, VR, XR, uh, data intelligence, um, digital twins, human experience, sustainability and resilience. So they're, I mean, they're all, you know, sort of 
some of the usual suspects that everybody's talking about. Um, and for whatever reasons, we've settled on those. There's others, I suppose, that, that could be candidate ideas. But anyway, for now, um, that's what we've got. And each of those has a team that's tasked, you know, a small team of, of four people that are, are tasked with going out there and finding out what's going on and, and then developing communication strategies to, to share that out with the entire firm. I think those are, those are good four or good seven. It's interesting because, you know, I, I came up with a similar, similar list for something else. Huh. And uh, a lot of those topics are pretty, not old, but older topics. Right. That I don't know if we, I don't know if the industry is like lost sight of it or they got distracted or, you know, what it is, but all of these older topics like digital twins, it's been around for a long time or sustainability, right. which, right. you know, depending on your opinion, is a big deal or not. Um, but it's now reaching a point where it's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. And I don't know if it's, you know, the current times or what, right. but it seems like it's, it's more prevalent now. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I, I think there's some, you know, Gartner has that hype cycle, um, you know, diagram, that curve that, that I think is, 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 it's a pretty good curve, I think, <laughs> you know, where so. there's that, you know, that initial hype, you know, that goes into it and, you know, these, you know, heightened expectations and then the trough of despair or whatever it's called when yep. people get tired about hearing about it because they're not really seeing anything coming of it. And, and then it finally reaches, you know, a rebound point and gets to a, a sustainable development, you know, level of, of interest and um, things are happening. And, um, you know, I'm not sure where all seven of these are, you know, there's different things within each of those seven that fall mm -hmm. in that different locations on that curve but um yeah i i, I think I, I i agree there's there's a lot of in here that especially if you've been sort of immersed in the digital you know technology aspect of practice you especially have been hearing about these things for a long time and and maybe people that are outside of that bubble um you know haven't been hearing um in fact we had i'm i'm heading up the digital twins group within knowledge labs and we had our first call earlier this week and uh with the team and i and and we've deliberately seeded the teams with with diverse people from different disciplines and different market groups within the company and so i didn't know three of the people three of the four people on my team and we you know had a conversation about you know what this is about and i asked everybody I said how many of you are actually familiar with the term digital twins and one of the people has said they had never heard of the term before, um, you know, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a mixed bag right now. So we're trying to, you know, through this part of our um, innovation pillar anyway, trying to get our arms around all of these moving fluid concepts that are, you know, swashing around outside in, in the world. So that's, I, I appreciate that you guys, like, I appreciate sort of management or leadership sort of setting it as a direction, a pillar of your organization, because in a way, like, I think innovation can be kind of perceived as a little gimmicky, like, oh, yeah, we're all innovative or, oh, yeah, we need to innovate. But to actually have the backing and say, no, you know, this is why we need to do it. And this is what we're going to achieve out of this. Right. Um, it seems like I've had several of these conversations up to this point and it all all the ones that have been successful. It was with the backing from the top that, you know, this right. is a direction that we want to go in. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and it's, of course, it's also, it's not um, just rhetoric, you know, that the, the question is, you know, is there money behind it? Is there, is there line items in the annual budget that cover the cost of actually doing what, you know, people, everybody says you want to do. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel like we're fortunate um, here because the, the, um, the leadership in the company, the C-suite, um, you know, has endorsed this and, and we have an annual operating budget for in innovation, um, which is um, not quite seven figures, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty nice chunk of money. Um, to, and that's to huge. Cause in a way happen. that takes that off the table. So now you don't have mm -hmm. to worry about, you know, the, the money part, you could focus right. on the things that actually, after you've prioritized your list that are going to, you know, have the biggest return. Yep. Yep. So with, with Studio X, um, you know, so, so Knowledge Labs is kind of, our, as I said, sort of lightweight research, I would call it. We're not developing things, but in Studio X is where, you know, the intent is to develop things. Although mm -hmm. in this first year, we've got kind of a mixed bag of things that are more lightweight. So we're, we've got a group that, that is looking at, um, you know, uh, the, the um, advanced construction um, techniques, what's going on out there and what does that mean? So we, we actually did fund through Studio X a, a specific project for that. 
a couple others like that, but then we've also got some that are much more, um, you know, the end product is going to be some kind of software development um, work. And uh, so, so it's, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag and we're going through the process now of, of sort of formalizing the work plans for each of those so that there's an understanding of both scope and schedule and um, deliverables and um, treating them like real projects. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and having a number of checkpoints along the way where we can always take a look and see, okay, how's this going? You know, are we throwing good money after bad money or is this actually, you know, looking like it's moving in a promising direction and we can, you know, you know, cut or keep fishing if, if we want, you know, so. How did you land on sort of the need um, for that type of incubator platform? What was the, the driver for even create the creation of Studio X? I think, um, there's a number of things. I think part of it is sort of, um, you know, sort of this, there's this vague I idea, you know, of, of our industry being under siege in a way, right? That there's all kinds of things happening outside of our disruption. industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, how do we prepare for that? Um, and, and maybe, you know, sort of the answer is you, you need innovation as a, as a core, um, you know, core concept within your, your company. And, and how do you make that happen? Well, you've got to engage people. You, you've got to let innovative people innovate. Um, and, you know, how do you do that within the framework of, um, you know, a company that needs to, to continue operating and, and we still have, you know, margins we need to hit and, um, you know, the whole issue of chargeability and what we utilization call utilization rate, um, you know, is always, you know, in front of everybody and and so how do you create a safe space where innovation can actually happen where project managers aren't freaking out because you're burning hours on something and they're not seeing the value of it yet and you know that whole dynamic so um you know it's an attempt to to create that safe space and and part of what i i, I think i bring from having spent time in the world of startups is how do you bring a, a startup or, or certain par parts of a startup mentality into that um corporate environment uh to to you know get a little bit past the um the whole fear you know the risk mitigation mentality that that drives um it's the whole reason why we have you know um you know legal counsel on staff you know yep. to, to sort of you know keep us inbound so to speak um and so much well i don't know if it's true but it seems like so much of innovation in a way it's a game of failure it's like my favorite sport is baseball which is clearly a game of failure you <laughs> yeah. know like a 300 batting average is hall of fame but you failed seven times right. and so i've came across a quote long ago that i actually really liked and it was something along the lines of you can't encourage innovation and punish failure yeah and it is something that it sounds like you know you have to it has to be ingrained in the culture um, because we are constantly fighting the, well, what is the ROI on this? Have mm -hmm. I evaluated the assessment? Oh, we worked on this for 20 hours. And at the end of 20 hours, we decided we didn't want to work another hour. Yeah. Sometimes, and, and I've, and again, we're in the beginning of it, but we, we've gone through trying to adopt some lean principles in our innovation. And we would do essentially a lean canvas or a business model canvas on an idea. And the thought is it tries to get some of those individuals to think outside the building a little bit. Right. But I told them that, you know, not every idea may do it, but if we did, we develop it through that level. And then at the end of it, we just need, uh, you know, what is the, the ask? The ask could be, we don't need to pursue this anymore. And yeah. that is totally acceptable. Right. The ask could be, I need a $10,000 or a hundred thousand dollars and that's fine too. But um, recognizing that, you know, all the things we're battling, not everything we do is going to work. So the question right. then is, I mean, everything that has gone through Studio X or that you push, I mean, do you all have kind of like a, a moment where you assess and say, is this worth pursuing? Or have you already done that before it even gets to Studio X? Well, when we, we put out a call for ideas uh, across the firm shortly after the first of the year, and, you know, being the first time doing this, we had no idea what the response would be and, and um, you know, crossing our fingers that we would get responses. And we ended up getting um, 99 responses, almost 100 responses. And um, Tell me one person couldn't have sent another one. <laughs> you couldn't have gotten yeah. clear 100. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so then obviously we went through a, a vetting exercise of, of evaluating all the um, 
the ideas and it that was a fairly informal process that we didn't have hard guardrails on but what ended up happening is is a, a majority of the selections ended up sort of aligning with the categories we had identified, for example, in our knowledge labs. Um, so we, we got a good deal of coverage across that spectrum um, of, of project ideas. And did they know that before, like did they, when you did the call for ideas, did they also know the seven? No, they didn't. And, and that's, you know, one of the things, you know, we're learning as we go. And, and so I think next year we'll be a little more explicit about, you know, hopefully identifying the criteria by which we're going to evaluate. Um, you know, we didn't really have that, sense of criteria in place for this first time. Like I said, we were just, we wanted to cast a wide net because we weren't sure what kind of response we would get. So mm -hmm. we didn't, we put very little out there in terms of expectations uh, about what the um, projects would be. And we got a, a really wide variety. We got, you know, of course, a, a number of sort of uh, digital technology oriented uh, ideas and we, but we got a lot of things that were like, uh, you know, somebody said we need to, somebody suggested that we stand up a um a new company that was uh founded by vet that 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 was staffed by veterans um and it was uh you know to position that as as a a different kind of business unit and and so forth and it, so there was a lot of a lot of different kind of thinking that was going on around um propositions because we hadn't put any guardrails on so um, you know, there was, a, there was this process of saying, you know, that as we were evaluating that said, okay, this one really just needs to be steered to HR, or this one needs to be steered to the C-suite. Um, it's not really a Studio X project, but it's a really good idea. Um, and, and sort of had some of that kind of exercise going on, which I thought was really good. How did you, so you said like, we, you didn't set out your guardrails, but in, when you went through that review process, because I would say that, that I believe, or at least I've encountered is one of the harder parts is that evaluating and prioritizing because in a way everything seems like a good idea yeah so you know without having all of that background yet how did you guys determine which route you wanted to go it was i mean honestly it was just a lot of discussion um you know talking through ideas and it was highly imperfect um i would say um you know i i think in the end we were looking for we got a, a mixed bag of things that were low-hanging fruit, um, some that were more sort of lightweight research, like I said, mm -hmm. and then some that were potential home runs, you know, one or two that, you know, had some some real profound um, potential, I think. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of, we ended up sort of gravitating, I think, in that way, um, you know, towards the final selections, and then, you know, kind of trying to weigh all of that against what we, you know, understood to be our budget and what we perceived might be the weight of the lift for for each of those those projects potentially um, so once those seven were selected then we went into this this process of basically for each one getting real clear about scope because because the process for submitting an idea was a one-page form we wanted to make it very painless um, so there wasn't a lot of elaboration about the idea we weren't asking people to develop business plans or labor estimates or cost estimates or anything like that with their idea yet. We just wanted to know what the basic idea was, what the problem was that they were addressing that, you know, led to them to, to make this proposal. Mm -hmm. So once they were accepted, then we began the exercise of saying, okay, let's talk about the scope of this. Let's talk about what all you're going to really need in terms of how much of your time are we going to need to hire outside developers to, to, to write code? Are we going to need to find um, outside subject matter expertise to, to weigh in on, on, you know, how this should be developed and, you know, all those kinds of things to, to arrive at some order of magnitude understanding of the cost, reconciling that against the overall Studio X budget. And then uh, where we are right now is, is an exercise of, of having in some cases to say, okay, we're going to have to cut some scope here, or we're going to have to define this as a multi-phase project that, only phase one is in fiscal year 20 and maybe a, a subsequent phase is going to have to get um, evaluated for FY21 and, you know, those sorts of things. So that's kind of where we're at right now. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, 
and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit ASTI.com and let them know we sent you. You guys, uh, you recently won an award, right? You mentioned that to me. Yeah. Um, so, and that came out of Studio X? No, not, not actually. It, it was, that was a case where um, we had a motivated individual had been doing some development work of his own, even outside of the office um, on an idea about harvesting um, heart rate data that could be interpreted into stress that we could begin to um, equate with locations in the built environment. So trying to understand the emotional experience of different uh, locations in the built environment. And um, so he, he submitted that idea to Studio X. You know, it was at a certain level of development um, and, and he submitted it to Studio X for um, additional development. We ended up accepting that uh, idea into, the stu into Studio X. Um, and in the meantime, prepared a, a, an awards submission package for Architect Magazine for their annual R&D awards program. And, and we ended up getting um, awarded last month um, on that project. So we picked up one of the seven awards for this year's cohort. That's exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah it, it was. I, and and um, so, so yeah, so now um, with, with Studio X, um, you know, we have this opportunity to take a project that I think has got a lot of potential. Um, it's gotten some visibility now and, um, you know, looking to, to move that forward. And it's also forcing us to um, quickly grapple with, you know, understanding, okay, patents and IP, you know, do we need to sort of start formalizing engagement in, in those kinds of constructs? Um, what does what is going to be our corporate policy around IP on these ideas when, when we begin when we solicit this from people in the firm? You know, how do we incentivize them to come forward with their their idea as opposed to them saying, you know, I just want to do this on my own outside of the company? And that's a, I'll be curious to see what you guys come up with for that because that actually is a specific conversation I had internally with someone because it's a difficult thing. Like if you know, I was at Georgia Tech and. You know, I think their stance is while you're there, anything you do within the confines in a way they own. So right. it's like, okay, well, are we going to miss out on some really great ideas because right. of our stances? If I develop it on company time, I own it. And that's a pretty common stance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would be curious if that's like, if that's the right stance, um, right. because in a way you're going to cut yourself short because somebody's going to say, well, I have a fantastic idea and I'm going to on right. Saturday submit this to get a patent and you would have never known about it. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that policy that you describe at Georgia tech is, is, is very common, I think in all universities and yep. it's actually very common in the corporate world. Every company I've worked for, I've signed a form. And but when I came on board that basically said, any idea I come up with at any time, you know, at work or not, um, is the property of the company. And, mm -hmm. um, and I understand where that, that boilerplate comes from, you know, our, our, our legal groups within the company, their, their mission is to protect the company, to yep. um, protect the, their investments in, in the development of ideas and so forth. Um, but it's a very one-sided um, kind of mentality. And, and when you, when you make the, you know, the declaration that as a company, you're going to prioritize innovation, you've got to think about how do you uh, temper that, that kind of um, those kind of protections that are in place um, so that you don't, um, you know, shoot yourself in the foot with trying right. to, to get innovation off the ground. So, I mean, there's been stuff I've worked on in a past life. Now I didn't chase a patent or anything at the time. I thought maybe I would that I stopped yeah. at a certain point and I'm like, Ooh, this is a pretty good idea. You know, yeah. I'm going to work on this later right. and uh, you know, start using my own home computer and doing it on right. the weekend. And right. in a way it's like, granted that went nowhere, but there is that mentality of like, we could, there could be a world in which both the organization and the employee could benefit the same amount. Right. Whereas right now, no one's going to benefit because it's right. going to either be the employee doesn't get what they deserve or the, right. the company's not going to get the idea. So right. the lose, lose, I think. Yeah. So yeah, that's something that we're, we're working through now. And, and, you know, I can imagine it, it may be some baby steps, but I think that, um, you know, 
I mean, when you look at corporate America or the, you know, the corporate world for that matter in general, there's, you know, historically, I feel like there's been this sort of um, movement away from the once upon a time when, when loyalty was a core bedrock concept on both sides. You know, the, the companies were extremely loyal to, to the employees. The employees were extremely loyal. I mean, my dad worked for one company his entire career. Um, you yeah. don't see that much anymore. No, and, and now like you hear in a way the argument of, oh, that's not good because you don't get new, you know, points or view or perspectives. And, you know, I was, I hear it all the time because I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, which I fall into the millennial group and they just like said, oh, they only stay in your company for three years. So right. enjoy, enjoy the next year. And right. so it, it kind of goes both ways. You look at LinkedIn and somebody would say, oh, they've been in a lot of places less than two years. Well, that could be a positive, right. but it could be, you know, so loyalty. Right. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. I don't think. Yeah. And so, so that, that kind of claim, you know, of, of, of owning, you know, every thought that comes out of your brain. Um, and, and even in this sort of emerging, you know, this climate of diversity and inclusion and, and social justice and social equity. And it, it to me, it, it, it sort of doesn't resonate quite right, especially as, as what's happening. This, it, it has a feeling of a, um, you know, almost a colonial kind of mentality that we, we own everything about you. And, yep. um, and it, and it, you know, there's, there's, at some point that's going to be counterproductive, I, I think. And so, you know, but at the same time, you know, the, the company does have to protect their investments and, yep. and, and if the company doesn't exist, then nobody wins, you know, so. Yep. Um, and they're paying balance, you to think about those things right. in a way. So, so if, if you can incentivize people to, to, you know, bring those ideas forward and, and turn it into a win-win, I think that's what we're searching for as we're developing, you know, the Studio X platform here. So. Um, as we start to kind of wrap up, you know, we talked a little bit about your startup experiences and then is there anything, you know, we sort of touched on it, but is there like one or two core things that you try to instill now that you think are ingrained in the startup world um, to help specifically around innovation? Cause I think that's where the biggest drive would be. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and I think, I mean, this is coming from, you know, you mentioned, I think agile and, and, you mm -hmm. know, concepts like that, that I think, you know, have come from, you know, the software development world and, um, you know, are trying to be folded into practice. And this idea of, again, I, I see this a lot with, with, with designers is, you know, that, that are, you know, also developers, um, you know, the, the desire to take something to a finished polished state um, and then put it out there for people to consume. Um, risking, you know, as I said before, the, the, the possibility that it just may not ring true with people, you know, even though you think it's perfect. And so, um, you know, the idea of, of putting stuff out there that's half-baked, that's still dirty, that's still messy, that's, that's you, know, you know, just to be able to get feedback, I think is, is one of the things that I feel like um, we have to explicitly focus on um, still um, because of that tendency to want to take it to a polished state before you share it. Um, I think that's something fundamental that, that we're working on. So, you know, working with um, prototyping tools like Adobe's XD and um, I, we've got somebody that likes a product called proto.io just to, mm -hmm. to quickly mock things up um, both. And, and we're using these tools on the Studio X project, not only to, we're use, not only to, to sort of share the ideas with other potential users, but even before that to share it internally with our project management, you know, groups to, to understand what are you thinking about how this tool is going to work. And, and, and by making people just visually mock it up first, you start thinking about, okay, how is this going to work? You know, and, and when they click on this, what's going to happen and where's all the data going when you do click on it and what happens, blah, blah, blah. So you think it, it, it enables the ability to think through the scope very explicitly and, mm -hmm. and get everybody on the same page very quickly about where this tool is headed and, and how it needs to work. Um, that that's another thing I see this, this idea. And, you know, it, it's sort of surprising to me in a way because architects, when we're doing architecture, this is exactly how we work, right? We, we create quick concepts. Yep. We have a phase called conceptual design. We, we, we take it to a certain level. We share it out. We get immediate feedback before we've invested in, you know, engineering the whole idea and all that kind of stuff. And, and we move it along, we move it along incrementally and, and get feedback at every step before we, we go to the next step. 
but for some reason <laughs> the, the people doing you know digital development you know don't don't you know maybe I, I don't know what it is but but it doesn't by nature tend to, to progress that way i don't know i do find it interesting because i would say that um you know as architects we're not the best business people uh, but this, if we took the concepts that we use in design and apply those same concepts to business, I think we'd be a lot better off. And yeah. with the innovation, one thing I found interesting is there's stuff that's come out of it in a way, uh, at least internally, that it makes us start to reflect on how we do other things in the organization. It may not be a world changing idea or anything. I mean, yeah. it could be something as simple as I was messing with Power Automate to do some stuff for myself because I you know, was being lazy. And then yeah. I'm like, wait a second, what if we do this over here and, yeah, yeah. You know, for accounting? So <laughs> and that's, I like that's having true. a forum to do it. And we've, I'm finding even, you know, just by, like we recently hired somebody that, that, that came out of the University of North Carolina. They have an interesting program there. It's a dual degree architecture and IT master's program. And mm -hmm. uh, so we hired a, a fellow out of there recently and, and he's been doing some automation stuff around for people around the firm. and. It has been interesting to see exactly that in a way from not from from our internal team, but from people, you know, out in the studios, out on the teams saying, wow, I didn't know you could automate that. And and then a light bulb goes off and they say, well, does that mean you could also automate this and this and this? And, yep. and you start getting people to actually become conscious of, of, you know, a little bit of what's possible. That's the beauty because um, <clears throat> like I, I do a lot of Dynamo with Revit and, yep. um, you know, I would show people that are never going to use it, but I would just show them the process of something. And then I'm saying, I would say, okay, now go, you know, go think. Cause now that you know, I can automate the creation right. of a sheet. Yep. Now you're going to ask me, well, can I do this? <laughs> right. What about that? Yeah, of right. course we can. And that, that's a big, that's an important aspect of trying to cultivate innovation, I think, is, is just for people to realize that there's things that can be done that, that they hadn't even thought of before. So just fostering the, uh, the environment to, to think right. in a way, um, to collaborate and culture is I've seen, it seems to be the most critical aspect of all of it. Yeah. And I think another thing that, that we're we haven't gotten to yet, but I see on the radar on, on the roadmap here is the whole issue of, of, enlightening the people that are managing these um innovators yep. so the, the the you know the project leaders um and the project managers creating the space for people to be able to improvise let's say with with dynamo or grasshopper or something on some aspect of a project um because they know it can solve some solution you know so they can solve it can solve some kind of problem or enable some kind of exploration that that wasn't possible otherwise and, and for project managers not to get all nervous about <clears throat> a process that they're not familiar with. How do we, how do we yeah. empower our project managers to, to get comfortable with that, to allow innovation to happen on projects, you know, reasonable amounts of innovation, you know, that, that, that introduce reasonable amounts of risk. And then beyond that, if, if when, when, the, when the, the development project is about something that leads to a new service or something that's client facing, training people how to, to sell this stuff is, is another big hurdle. People yep. you know, that are typically out in front of our clients, you know, about our services, they're, they're knowledgeable about the things that we've always done. They get, they can get, you know, real uncomfortable trying to sell something they're not familiar with, even if it is really something powerful. Um, so, so I think some focus on, on how do we um, address those people in the organization as well? How do we empower them? So. It's a, it's a very difficult, it's a, you know, in a way, like I asked a question, I'll ask you the same as, you know, kind of future of innovation or where you see things going. But I asked a guy a couple of weeks ago, the same thing. And he's like, well, I mean, we've always been innovating from day one, you know, I mean, from like the very beginning of how a wheel existed and every, I mean, everything we're always innovating, right. but it seems now we're putting more focus on it and corporations are recognizing that in a way we've all we've known if you don't evolve you will probably perish but now right. we really say okay we have to innovate and um and so my ask i guess as we wrap up is you know how do you feel like everyone say we'll say specifically in architecture since that's our uh, domain should everyone have an innovation program of some sort should anyone have a leader of innovation to really drive it as a process and not just be like this inherent thing that we say we do. 
Yeah, I don't know if, if every firm is going to need a, a leader or not, or, or the, the leader may be the founder of the firm. And, and um, you know, the culture of a place, I think, is obviously the culture comes from the people. Um, yep. So depending on who the people are, that's, that's going to sort of determine what your culture is. How far you can go <clears throat> in shifting the culture by virtue of hiring a, an innovation leader um, I think is an open question. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, if it's just a matter of getting, you know, somehow unlocking the ability for people to innovate, um, you know, to, 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 to access that latent innovation there, that's just waiting to be given permission. Um, yep. <clears throat> maybe that's, that's how it goes. I'm not sure, but there's, yeah, there's no question in my mind that, 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 Yes, we've we've focused on on innovation. I mean, design it, you know, by virtue of of, of the nature of design is innovation. I mean, we <clears throat> rarely are doing, you know, the same thing over and over again. You know, everything's yep. always a unique solution, and and so so you have to innovate, you know, at some level, no matter what. But now now we're talking about it from a bit, you know, at a at a business model um, level almost, and and you know, as as new kinds of startups. As as the big um, technology companies are flexing their 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 muscles by virtue of of the data they have access to and the data processing capabilities that they have, the ability to do certain kinds of analysis um, that represent extremely high value propositions to our clients that that have the ability you know to get in front of the clients even before they pull a trigger on a project and say you may or may not actually even need to do this project. Um, you may not need another building. Let me yep. show you why. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, and, and, you know, we're seeing that, you know, from the technology companies, but also from the traditional consulting companies, you know, like the mm -hmm. Deloitte's and the KPMG's and the Accenture's and those kinds of people are, are getting more and more into our space um, as well. So, so yeah, I think, you know, the preservation of our livelihood depends on um, us being, aggressive about the way that we think about what we're, we're delivering. So. Absolutely. I, you know, kind of, I read, I mean, it was geared towards construction, but it's, it's both is we are prime for disruption. And the main reason is just most people in the industry, I mean, granted, there's some giant names that people never forget, but there's no, like, there's no IP. There's no nothing really that keeps the, the top dog that has the marketing power that keeps them in power. Yeah. Um, they're just there by size or experience or longevity, but as a result, they're prime for disruption because really it just takes somebody with focus on technology or data or process or anything like that and can really upend a lot of these market leaders. So, I mean, I do think it's pretty critical to, we have, we have to survive as an, as an industry. Yeah, um, I agree. This is the way to do it. Well, man, I've really enjoyed it. I, we could talk for a whole nother hour, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, good um, stuff. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2020.